following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, anytime um, I bring up uh, a movie, there's something you have to understand. I never know exactly when movies come out because we very rarely go to movie theaters. And I know, like, that's something none of us has done. For, I don't even know movie theaters are even out there anymore, to be completely honest with you, after this last year. But, so when I say a movie um, that I just saw from five or six years ago, there's a very, very real possibility that the movie's been around for 10, 15 years. So if that's the case, I'm sorry. But about five or six years ago, there was a movie that came out. It caught my attention. And I was like, this is one I I really, really want to see because I want to know more about this man and his life. The movie was called Unbroken. Unbroken. And it was, uh, it it intrigued me because it's about, it's it's a real story. It's true life. All right. And I know that it is, it is Hollywood. So I'm sure that they had some fun with it. But um, let me tell you something, who the, the movie is about, the main character, the hero, is a man by the name of Louis Zamperini, and a man that did a lot of things with his life about 50, 60 years ago. He was a, an Olympic runner, not just an Olympic runner competing for the United States, he was a champion. Um, he was a World War II veteran, he was a prisoner of war, and the story is about the difficulty of his life and what he experienced what his, from, from, being, from his plane going down and being out at sea in a raft for weeks and weeks to being picked up, not by a ship that he wanted to be picked up by, but picked up by a Japanese ship, to being taken to a, a Japanese prisoner of war encampment, to finding out who this guy was. So they wanted to break him because this is an Olympic champion. If they can break him, then that's really going to show something for the power of, of that prisoner camp and the structure there and about everything he went to now let me tell you something there is much I mean it's a it's an incredible story of the triumph of the human spirit but there is much more to his story than what the movie tells when he did get back home that's when things really began to go crazy in his life and you're like more crazy being a prisoner of war and being tortured yeah that's what I mean and the Lord getting a hold of him I mean, pretty, incredibly powerful story, very well titled, Unbroken. Now, he does not, as as great a hero as Louis Zamperini was in an incredible story, I would encourage you to dig into his story. It is a powerful one. He doesn't have the market cornered on, on history when it comes to people who triumphed through extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And the hero of our story today went through something quite similar. As a matter of fact, the hero of our story also found, found his story being on, on multiple big screen type of occasions. Many movies have, have taken place about this character. Um, not only that, there was, there was a Broadway show that was about him. Matter of fact, the guy's story even showed up on Seinfeld once upon a time. All right, so we're talking about somebody very, very well known, and our hero. Before you know, movies have sequels; they have prequels. This guy's story was a prequel to somebody else, and that guy was Moses. But before Moses entered the scene in the Old Testament, there was a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph's dad had an interesting name. His name was Israel. His name was Jacob. God changed it to Israel. And, and, and Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons. Now, Jacob did some pretty 
amazing things, did some pretty bad things. One of the things he didn't do very well was the, the dynamics taking place within his household. They weren't all good. And he showed a high level of favoritism toward one son in particular, and that son was, in fact, Joseph. So much so that his brothers were jealous to such a level that they wanted him gone. So they beat him, threw him into a pit. Short time later, there's a little bit of an understory going on there. As I'm going I'm to go through this very, very quickly. All right? You can look at it, Genesis chapter 37 through 47, if you kind of want to follow along as we talk our way through this. Um, there's one brother that wanted to restore him to his father. Uh, so he's trying to make this happen. In the meantime, while he is gone, the other brothers sell Joseph to slave traders. Those slave traders make their way to Egypt. And once Joseph finds himself in Egypt, he is purchased, probably at some sort of slave market of some kind, by a guy by the name of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was a pretty powerful man in Egypt. He was the captain of the Pharaoh, the king's bodyguard. So he was. Well, he, he purchased this slave not knowing what he was going to get. I mean, this guy got a bargain because when, when Joseph ended up in his home, everything that he put Joseph in charge of, I'm sure it started pretty low, but it got greater and greater and greater because everything he did, he did well. And, and he was successful in everything that he did. Caught the eye of Potiphar, but he also caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. Right? And she took a liking to this Joseph guy, and she tried on multiple occasions to seduce him unsuccessfully. And in the end, she was not happy about this, so she framed him, and he ended up in prison. So, we got Joseph now in prison. Um, guess what? He's in prison, and once again, he's pretty successful. He kind of rises to the top. But let me tell you something about prison. I don't know it from experience, but watching from afar, okay, the ceiling isn't very high in prison. I mean, you can climb the ladder some, but it's not going to be an extension ladder. It's going to be a step stool. I mean, you can only get so high there. But he gets, he's in charge of the prisoners. Some of these things taking place. A couple other prisoners show up one day. And these guys were also somewhat, I guess, important in the kingdom. One was the king's baker, I mean, obviously, you want the king to be happy, so the baker, that's an important position, all right? And then the king's cupbearer. Now, that's a tough job. If you die, you did your job well. That's basically what you do. You, you, you taste everything before the king drinks it to make sure that it doesn't kill you. Interesting job. So, for some reason, the king, Pharaoh, was upset with both of them. Both of them end up in prison. Both of them end up having some dreams that are really puzzling to them and, and kind of shaking their world just a little bit. Joseph, he overhears them talking about this, and he says, look, I can tell you what your dreams are about. Tells them what their dreams are about. One guy had a pretty good interpretation of his dream. The other one, not so good. The cupbearer got the good version, and he ends up being restored to his position. Before he leaves, Joseph says, do not forget me. Please remember what I've done for you when you're restored to your position. He, 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 who wants to stay in prison forever, all right? He wanted out, especially an innocent man. Cupbearer forgets him. Two years. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream himself, has a couple of dreams. One about cows, one about corn. You didn't know that Pharaoh was from Kansas, did you? Dream about cows and corn. All right. Anyway, so he has, he has these dreams. And again, he's shaken up a little bit by the dreams too. And he's wondering what's going on with this. He gets all of his magicians, his conjurers together. They can't tell him what the dreams are about. Then the cupbearer, the light bulb finally goes on. He's like, oh, 
ah, Pharaoh, there's this man, young man in prison, who told me and the baker that you killed a while back, um, he told us about our dreams and what he told us came true. So Pharaoh sends for him. He comes, they clean him up a little bit first. Uh, and they bring him there. And long story short, Joseph tells him what's going to happen in his dream. There's going to be seven years of incredible abundance in the nation of Egypt, and then after that, there would be that would be followed by seven years of famine. But this is not just an Egypt famine; this is a worldwide famine. And he says, "You better prepare for it, King, because it's not going to be good." The king is so impressed by Joseph that he puts him in charge of everything. Everything he gives him his signet ring. You know what that means? That's like Pharaoh saying, "The only one who can't tell." You cannot tell what to do. The only one is me. But by giving him that signet ring, he's even showing Joseph that you can even sometimes tell me what needs to happen and what I need to do. So we've got this man that went from a slave to a prisoner to one of the most powerful men in the world. In the span of what was taking place here, we're, we're working on a little over a decade. And then about two decades after, give or take a couple of years, after his brothers sell him into slavery, guess who shows up? His brothers. And through a series of planned out interrogations and interviews and a lot of different things, Joseph in the long run ends up letting them know exactly who he is. And this is what's amazing. He says, and his brothers are like, Psh. I mean, they're like, okay, we're dead meat. <laughs> I mean, we are absolutely dead meat. And Joseph says to them, what you meant for evil, for me, God meant for good. It was God who put me in this land so that I can not only save a lot of people, but I can save my family. You see, Joseph was a teenager when he was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was 30 years old when he rose to prominence in Egypt. And then it was another seven, eight, nine, ten years later that he met his brothers. I've got a question for you. In that span of about two decades, how many sleepless nights do you think Joseph had? Maybe when he was in the pit, thinking, oh, my brother's going to kill me? What, what's going to happen here? I don't think they're too happy with me. Well, what about the, as he's in the caravan of the slave traders? As he's before the rage of the captain of the bodyguard, Potiphar? Having been framed by his worthless wife? For two years being forgotten in that prison after he had this little glimmer of hope of maybe being able to get out of that place? How many sleepless nights do you think? It's like, do the hits just keep on coming? What we'll see if we look very closely at Genesis 37 through 47 is this. If we look really closely, we'll see something. We'll see the integrity of this man, Joseph. Take a look at chapter 39. We're just going to look at one verse of this. Chapter 39, verse 9. You see, when... when Potiphar's wife once again comes to Joseph and tries to seduce him. There's nobody in the house. We can get away with this. Please. This is what he says. 
He says, he says this, I'm going to paraphrase it just a little bit. He says, your husband Potiphar has trusted me with everything and withheld nothing from me but you. How could I sin against him? Is that right? Is my paraphrase right here? Does it sound right? Well, let's forget the paraphrase and let's read it. Genesis 39 verse 9. Joseph speaking to Potiphar's wife. He says, There is no one greater in this house than I, and he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against who? Sin against God. Joseph had this incredible ability to accurately interpret the dreams of others. And every time he does this, he does not take the credit. He gives the credit to God. And as you read from Genesis 37 to 47, there's something else you're going to see if you look at it closely. You're going to see time and again, when, when even when Joseph is in these places that we would say, he's pretty low right now. This is definitely a valley. It seems like the story even highlights that in those places we see these words. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. I've got a question for you. Do you think Joseph was a worrier? You think he was a worrier? I would say no. And not only would I say, no, he was not a worrier, I can tell you with absolute certainty, my wife hates me doing this, I can guarantee, she doesn't like me saying that, I can guarantee you that he was not a worrier. Let's dig into that just a little bit. All right, we're going to leave Genesis and we're going to turn to Philippians. You're going to find it a little over halfway through your New Testament. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. This is a church he is very happy with, very proud of. And as he is, as he is writing them, um, as we look to Philippians chapter 4, I'm not going to highlight the verse that usually gets highlighted from Philippians chapter 4. comes a little bit before that one. And this is some of the advice that Paul is giving to this church. I'm going to look specifically Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And this is what Paul says. He says to them, to us, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if we were Greek readers, we would see a word that bounces out of the ink, off the pages, in ink, at us, in the Greek, and the word is this, merimnao. It can be translated a variety of different ways. What the New American Standard has done with it is here is anxious, but it can also be translated worry, concern. It comes from a different Greek root word that means anxiety. And Paul says, be anxious for what? Nothing. Nothing makes the list. Be anxious for nothing. Turn a few pages before this. We'll come back to Philippians 4. So you can, you can stick a bookmark there or something. But for just a moment, turn to, it's just going to be a few pages, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
verses 28 and 29. As you're turning there, let me tell you a bit about what's taking place here. Paul is talking about his life, the things that have happened to him. He's actually talking about his credentials as an apostle and some of the things that he has experienced. Things like this, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead, robbed. Sounds like fun, right? Okay, so he's talking about these physical, these outward experiences that he has been through in his journey of preaching the message of the gospel for Jesus Christ. Okay, so he goes through some of these external things that he's experienced, and then in verse 28 and 29, he talks about what's going on inwardly during some of this time. Verse 28, Paul says, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That word concern, guess what that is in the Greek? Merimnao. What did Paul say in Philippians 4, 6? Be anxious for nothing. And then he talks about his concern for the churches. And then after that, if that wasn't enough, verse 29, he says, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? A different Greek word there that means literally to be set on fire. In other words, when he saw people fail and sin, his brothers and sisters in Christ, his concern was so intense, the only way he could accurately describe it was being set on fire. So my question is, is Paul not taking his own advice? (laughs) He told the church in Philippi, be anxious for nothing. And here, same word, he's talking about the concern that he has for the churches and how he, in fact, is set on fire because he sees people sinning, brothers and sisters sinning. I don't think that Paul is contradicting himself here. So let's, let's dig into it just a little bit deeper. And in order to do this, some of you are going to like this next portion of what we do because you're wordy people, all right? Wordy and nerdy, they go together for a reason. It's kind of me, okay? Uh, some of you are going to be like, oh, wait a second, preacher. Well, we'll talk to you before it's all said and done. So, but first for the word nerds, okay, here you go. We're going to define some things here just for a moment. Worry. Let's throw a definition on this. Worry. The disturbing state of being that keeps us from doing what God calls us to do. You got that? I'm going to say it again. I'm going to read it again here. The disturbing state of being that keeps us from doing what God calls us to do. You know why I can tell you with certainty that Joseph did not worry? Because he did what God called him to do. I didn't say he didn't have some sleepless nights. I'm just saying he did not allow his circumstances to get between him and God. You understand? That's what worry is. My circumstances get between me and God. Okay. I've talked to you wordy people, more to you in just a second. If you're not a wordy person and you like visual stuff, 
All right? Jesus was about visual stuff. And we'll talk about some of his visuals here in just a second. But before we do that, I've got a couple of videos for you. If, if, you, if, you, don't, if you don't latch on to that, to that worry thing of, of the position of pussies, like, well, it's all Greek to you, maybe this will speak to you. I've got two videos here that very, very accurately give us a portrayal of worry. Okay, throw the first one up, Zach. You seen this before? That's worry right there. Okay. All right. Why don't you throw the other one up there, Zach? Got that one enough for you. Got another one here for you. Another one. He's working. He's working hard. I looked up a little bit about this Bifasta guy. He's pretty funny. He's kind of a YouTube celebrity guy now. I didn't find anything bad. If there's anything bad that he ever does, don't look at it. Okay, I don't know about it. I didn't find anything. But he's working hard here. But he's accomplishing nothing. That is worry for you. Worry is an exercise in futility. You understand? That is worry. The disturbing state of being that keeps us from doing what God calls us to do. Okay. In the middle of Jesus instructing his followers about worry, and he tells them not to worry about the food that they do or do not have. Do not worry about clothing. Do not worry about shelter. After talking with them about this, like I said, Jesus was a visual teacher, and he gave them examples. This is what he says. He says, and who of you, by worrying, can add even a single hour to your life? As a matter of fact... We know from experience now and scientific experience that worry, if it does anything, it takes away hours from our life. Now, on the other side of this, concern. Concern. Let's, let's define this one. Concern leads to positive action and it puts God between me and my circumstances. It puts God between you and your circumstances. See the difference there? This is why Paul's concern for his brothers and sisters, even his intense concern, was a holy concern because he took his concern where? He took it to the Lord. That is the difference. How do we know? How do you know if you are worried or you are concerned? It's all about position. It is. Worry? Worry is this. Circumstances get between me and God. That's worry. Concern is putting God between me and my circumstances. Guys, before we go any further, I just want you to understand something. This is not some magic formula. It's not. I was even told by someone before the first service that, what's the difference between worry and concern? And he said, nothing. All right? This isn't some wordplay or magic formula. What it's trying to get ourselves to focus on is this. When life throws me for a loop, it should not take me from God. It should take me to God. Understand that? 
And I don't care what formula you have to put in place to remind you of that. Do it. Do it. Turn back to Philippians 4 again. Because we just focused on the first part of that verse and we left out the best. Philippians 4, 6, again. Be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The Bible doesn't just say, don't worry. It says pray. The Bible is not a don't worry, be happy thing, okay? That's not biblical. The Bible says, don't worry, pray. That is the formula every time. You know, the, the Bible is absolutely full of concerned people. It is. I mean, we just touched on, on a couple of them today, but I can throw some more out there. Abraham, and that guy had some concerns. He was told by God, this is your home, I know, but I want you to pack your bags and go somewhere else. And I'll tell you on the way where you're going. Just go. What about Moses. You don't think he had a sleepless night after he saw that burning bush and heard the great I am tell him, go take my people back. You shepherd in the middle of nowhere. Go face to face with the most powerful man in the world. I got a feeling Moses didn't sleep too well that night. I don't... I don't know what you think. That's kind of what I think. What about David? We talked a little bit about some of his concerns last week. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah, whose, whose circumstances led him to come to God and say, I'm the only one left. Nobody else. Nope, nobody else speaking the name. Speaking your name. It's just me. It's just me. I think I'm done. Why don't you just take me now? God says, wait a second. There's 7,000 that I can think of just off the top of my head that have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. You are not alone, Jeremiah. Now get out there and speak for me. What about Paul? We already looked a little bit about his concern. What about the Apostle John? You don't think he got concerned? Just look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John near the end of your Bible when he has this incredibly intense concern for the church because false teachers are coming within the church and attacking the message of the gospel. And he was not happy about it. What about God? Is God ever concerned? Oh, amen, preacher. We're talking about God here. He knows everything. Yeah, he knows everything. If you don't think God has ever been concerned, read Ezekiel 36, 21. When it says, God 
was concerned for his holy name. And how his people were profaning his name. Yeah, God was concerned. And speaking of God, what about Jesus? I'd be willing to bet that there is more than one person in this room who has spent a sleepless night because you couldn't shut this off. You know? It seems like the harder you tried, the more the wheels got turning. And, and those usually aren't the best nights. Those sleepless nights. And I know, I, I, would, I would bet that there's been some sleepless nights on behalf of those who are in this room. But I don't know how many of those sleepless nights would include a level of stress and concern that would bring you to sweating drops of blood. And yet we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane not on his knees, on his face, on the ground, crying out to his Father. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Was Jesus concerned? Yeah, I think so. Where did he go? To his Father. And guess what? His father didn't give him the answer he was looking for. There was no other way. And thank God, literally, for how Jesus finished that question. When he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Yeah, there's a lot of concerned people in the Bible. You know what you find in the Bible, though? Is you find so many of these concerned people. And you find somebody else with them. What did we see that about Joseph? as he was in the pit, as he was in the prison, as he was before Potiphar getting accused of something that he did not do, who was with him? The Lord was with him.